Second Samuel is actually a continuation of First Samuel. There's not really anything that you need to remember from First Samuel, so you can completely erase it all from your memory, and we're starting fresh with Second Samuel. Actually, I hope that isn't the case, because it really is very much a continuation of First Samuel. It left off at the end of First Samuel with Saul's death, and uh, uh, it was talking about the fact that he died in the battle against the Philistines, and he had asked his uh, armor-bearer to uh, finish the job because he had gotten struck by arrows and knew he was going to die, and he didn't want the Philistines to come and torture him before dying. So he asked his uh, uh, armor-bearer to finish the job, and he didn't want to do that because his task as an armor-bearer was to protect Saul, not to take Saul's life. So it came about according to 1 Samuel chapter 31, where he finished the story, Saul uh, took his own life by falling on his sword. And I want to emphasize that because the first chapter of 2 Samuel was continuing that part of the story with a slightly different take. And uh, so we're going to begin uh, looking at uh, the uh, story as it appears to be almost contradictory from what was written in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But there, in chapter 31 again, it said several times that Saul was dead and that Saul did fall on his own sword. And I want to emphasize the word sword here because that plays as well into our discussion as we move forward. So here we are in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, and uh, it is the beginning of David's reign as king of Judah and eventually of all of Israel. It's not going to be an easy thing for David to move in that direction, unfortunately. There's going to be some opposition. And it mostly is going to come from the northern tribes and the tribes that were um, friendly towards Saul. As it turns out, every one of them, with the exception of Judah, will not be willing to fall under David's reign initially. So here we are in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. And by the way, First and Second Samuel, they are two books, obviously, in our Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, they're just one single book. They were split apart by the translators of the Greek Septuagint around uh, 400 B.C. or earlier. Or maybe it was around 250, as, as early as that, B.C. But in any case, uh, for all of the English translations from the Septuagint and from the original Hebrew uh, uh, Bibles, we all of the, us in every one of these translations have these in two separate books. So Second Samuel is where we are, and it's going to be almost completely about David, his story, the soldier, the king, the poet, the songwriter, the man of God. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had learned or returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had slayed, uh, rather, David had stayed two days in Ziklag. Remember, Ziklag is a town that he was given by the king of Gath to allow him to stay in the territory of the Philistines, and he is going back now to Ziklag after having. Uh, destroyed all of the Amalekites who had raided Ziklag, burned it to the ground, 
and taken captive all of the women and children. David had won a victory against the Amalekites and brought all of those who had been taken by the Amalekites back home and a great victory for David against the Amalekites, who were a nomadic tribe. Remember, they are enemies of Israel, much like the Philistines, but they are basically a very real thorn in David's flesh. And uh, we'll see that as we continue. Verse 2 says, On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, Well, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people have fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So three days after having come back from this uh, fight against the Amalekites, David knows that the Philistines had been on their way to attack Israel, and he knew that a battle was going to ensue, but he had no information about the outcome of that battle. And now this individual, torn and tattered, arrives on the scene in Ziklag, and he says that he came from the camp of Israel, which piqued David's interest because now he has first-hand information from somebody that can explain to him what has happened with regard to the battle against the Philistines. So verse 5 says, David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? That must have been a terribly awful thing for him to have heard. Jonathan, his dear friend, killed in battle, all of the people of Israel that had been slain, and Saul, yes, his enemy, but he remembered Saul as the Lord's anointed. David never, ever wanted to kill Saul, and I don't think David took great pleasure in the fact that Saul was dead. It was a great, terrible loss to the people as far as David was concerned because he was a king and he had been anointed by the Lord to be their king. So he hears that David, uh, hears that uh, Saul and Jonathan are both dead and he's asking this person who has now arrived on the scene, how do you know this? And he says in verse 6, the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life remains still in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. This young man is an Amalekite. He's telling David a story, and that story doesn't agree with what we had just talked about that was recorded by the Holy Spirit through the writer of 1 Samuel with regard to how Saul died. Remember there, it tells us that Saul fell on his sword. Here, 
The Amalekite says he found Saul still alive. And not only that, but that Saul had fallen on his spear, not his sword. So there are discrepancies. There are differences in these two accounts. And it causes a lot of people to wonder, well, which one of these two accounts is actually true? And I could only tell you that from my own personal opinion, I believe that the story as given to us in 1 Samuel was indeed correct. Now that doesn't mean that this portion of the Word of God is in error. It's not a discrepancy in the Word of God. The Word of God is just relating what this young man told David. It's not necessarily saying that this is what actually happened. So again, many people believe that this man is telling exactly what did take place and they try to co you know coordinate or corroborate the, the the differences between the first Samuel 31 account and this account and it's very difficult to do it's a possibility that Saul did not ultimately die that the man who was his uh, armor bearer thought that he was dead but it indicates very very certainly in that passage that he saw that Saul was dead and again, this young man says he was leaning on his spear, and it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that Saul fell on his own sword. It's actually the Hebrew word for a dagger, um, and it's typical of the armory of those days where um, many of the soldiers would have a dagger as well as a full-length sword. And those are two separate words in the Hebrew. When it says that the young man who was his armor bearer fell on his sword, he fell on his long sword. It tells us that Saul fell on his dagger or short sword. All of that to say that this young man is telling David a story. He wants to impress David. He doesn't know that David thought of Saul in the way that he did with regard to his being the Lord's anointed. He presumed that David would be rejoicing over the death of his enemy. That would have been his opinion. As a matter of fact, we'll find out that in chapter 4, David recounts this particular incident and indicates very certainly that he did not believe this man's story, that he was only seeking a reward. And that's pretty much what this young Amalekite was doing. Why was he even there? Well, it's very common during a battle for individuals that would be observing the way the battle is going from a distance would, as soon as the armies would leave a territory, they would go in behind those armies and steal all that they can off of the dead bodies. And that's apparently what this young man must have done. That explains how he could have gotten to Saul and taken the king's crown and bracelet without anybody seeing him because the armies had already pushed forward trying to continue pushing the Israelites off of Mount Gilboa and then returning after the battle had ended and they would have found Saul dead. Remember, first Samuel tells us that they took the body of Saul and brought it back to the land of the Philistines and hung his body on the wall after severing his head. So that's all very, very likely to have taken place in that fashion. Now this Amalekite is trying to convince David that he has done him a great favor by killing Saul. So whether or not his story is accurate or not, 
we're going to continue to read the story that is given to us here in Second Samuel, knowing that either one of those two possibilities does really fit without any contradiction in the Word of God. It's just a matter of you or I or anybody else choosing which one do we think was the real likely story. But this young man has told David the story, and he's now waiting for David to reward him. Verse 11 says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did the men who were with him. That must have been a shock to this young Amalekite. Why would David be tearing his clothes? That's an indication of great sorrow and a great discomfort and, and a great deal of uh, uh, anguish over the news that he has just heard. That doesn't sound like it was good news to David. And I'm sure that that's what this young man began to think. It says in verse 12, They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So here David is bringing his judgment against this young Amalekite. He should not have tried to convince David that he had killed Saul. As far as David was concerned, he killed the Lord's anointed. And if that is what he had done, it's at least what he had said he had done. And if it was so, David had no reason to doubt that it was so at that point. Then he deserved to die. So he says, why... Have you done such a thing? Why were you not afraid to put forth your hand? And verse 15 says, Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So that's the judgment that David brings against the Amalekite. Remember, David had just come from slaughtering a whole bunch of Amalekites, and this one, also an Amalekite, is no exception. He deserved to die, and David made that judgment and acted on it swiftly. And then, in verse 17, David writes a song. It says, Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow, Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. If that is indeed the title of this song or psalm, this question as to why did he name it so? And probably, I believe it is exactly that, the title of the song, and it was probably titled that way on behalf of his friend Jonathan, who was a bowman. And we'll see that as the song proceeds. But before we go further and read exactly the words of this song, I just want to point out also that it says that it was written in the book of Jasher. Now, the book of Jasher was a compilation of traditions, poems, uh, histories of the Israeli people that go all the way back to Joshua's time, some 400 years or 350 years prior to David's time. And the book of Jasher was still in existence in the time of the writing of this book, Second Samuel. So 
Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of that book anywhere in the world today. It just simply did not make it. It's not considered to be the canon of scripture. It's not considered to be uh, accurately scripture because it was written for the purpose of uh, expressing uh, traditions and writing of poetry that doesn't really necessarily agree with the scripture. But this portion that was recorded in the book of Jasher was recorded here by the writer of Second Samuel in its entirety as having been penned by David. And the song goes like this. Verse 19 says, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He begins his poetry here by proclaiming that the mighty men have fallen, referring to here Saul and Jonathan, because that is going to be the focus of this uh, poetry. And he tells it, first of all, not to mention these things to those who live in the land of the Philistines, in Gath and other places in Philistine territory. Let not the daughters of the Philistines rejoice over the death of this hero, both of them, Saul or of Jonathan, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph in their victory over the people of God. So he starts out by saying in this woeful psalm that he does not want the people of the Philistines to rejoice over the death of his friend Jonathan and the Lord's anointed Saul. Continuing on in verse 21, it says, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. So he's talking about the actual location of where Saul and Jonathan were killed. The Mount Gilboa, that's where the battle had been won by the Philistines. And it's interesting to note, if you go to Israel today, I've been told, and many people have commented on this, so I believe it must be so, Mount Gilboa has an area on the top of the mountain which is completely barren. There's vegetation all around, but an area of that mountaintop is indeed barren. And so many of the guides in Israel comment on this portion of scripture in Second Samuel when they take visitors, tourists, to Mount Gilboa to show them the top of the mountain. And it's exactly as David here is asking the Lord to make it, to make it to, so that it is barren, no rain or dew falling on it, no fields of offerings, no place where vegetation will grow. And that is exactly as it turned out in that area. Interesting little insight is if you ever go to Israel and you go to Mount Gilboa, try to remember this and let me know if you ever do that, if these truth, uh, sayings are true. But notice in, again, verse 22, talking about the fact that Jonathan had a bow and Saul had a sword. Those were the weapons that they each chose as their specialty weapon. Saul did have a spear, yes, we saw that in 1 Samuel. He shot the spear at David twice, and he shot the spear at Jonathan. Well, he missed him all of the times that he shot those spears, so he wasn't really an accurate spear thrower, but he did have prowess with the sword. 
He was known as a man fierce in battle. Even though in some of the readings in 1 Samuel that you may recall where Saul was fearful of the Philistines or Saul was sitting under the tamarisk tree uh, away from the battle. Yes, that's true, but there were times in Saul's time on the earth where he was indeed a great warrior. He started out that way against the Ammonites uh, when they tried to take uh, the, the people in uh, Kadesh Barnea, uh, not Kadesh Barnea, um, a place in Gideon where, where they were going to pluck out the right eyes. Uh, and it was Saul who led the battle and won a great victory. Saul was a warrior, and it was indeed being attributed to him as a warrior here in this song. He was a very keen warrior. His shield, not anointed with oil, what they did in those days when they had their shields anointed with oil, it was for the purpose of keeping the leather from being dried out and allowed for the leather to be a little bit more flexible so that the shield would be able to ref, uh, to uh, uh, handle the blows of the swords more effectively, where the shields would uh, protect uh, the uh, the leather would be softened enough so that the, the blows of the swords wouldn't penetrate the, the leather and stick in into the leather. But over time, during the battle with blood and, so and soil and all kinds of things going on, uh, filling those shields up with debris, uh, they would become less oiled. But it says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, in verse 22, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return empty. And in verse 21, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. All of these things are indication of how difficult the battle must have been for them both. He continues in verse 23 and says, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They died together in the battlefield. Notice that he's saying Saul and Jonathan both were beloved and pleasant in their lives. While they were alive, they had a great number of people who appreciated them, a great number of people who thought well of them. They were indeed beloved, not by everybody, but neither was David. But that is what David is writing of Saul, his enemy. Saul, the one who wanted to kill him. Saul, the one who chased after him for over ten years. Saul, the one who took his wife away from him in his home. Saul, who made him to uh, run for all that many, many years. He says he was a beloved and pleasant man. Quite a tribute for an enemy. And I wonder if, and I think perhaps this is what we can all take home from this story as it's laid out for us. I wonder if we have enemies that we would say so many good things about them as David says about his enemy Saul. Read on and we'll get back to that thought momentarily. It says in verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So Saul provided for the nation of Israel and gave them an opportunity to, be, to become a greater people and have greater commerce. As a king, he led them into an area of prosperity where they were able to buy more things than they had ever bought before under the judges. 
for their benefit and for their pleasures. And the women especially benefited with luxurious clothing, scarlet, and all kinds of ornaments of gold and other apparel. They had become a fairly wealthy nation under Saul. That's what David is reminding the people in this song. And then in verse 25, he continues or ends this uh, poem or psalm with again the mention in verse 25, how mighty have how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. How the mighty have fallen. He says that three times in this song. The beginning of the song, here in verse 25 and in verse 27 at the end of the song. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. And then he goes on to talk about his friend. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen as the weapons and the weapons of war perished. That is the psalm. That is the poet, the poetry that David writes. And again, he wants the children of Israel to remember this psalm and to re use it, to memorize it, to use it as an illustration of how they should look upon Saul and Jonathan, not as enemies of Israel, but as great men of the nation to be respected, to be looked upon with favor and not with disdain. Whenever I have done a funeral, I have always included an opportunity for a eulogy. Now, the eulogy, that's a Greek word, really. It's a combination of uh, words that uh, really mean, define the name eulogy by, by saying it is a way of us to speak well of the departed. That's what eulogy means, speaking well of. And so David here is really giving a eulogy in that sense. He's speaking well of the departed. He could have said that Saul was a scoundrel. He could have said that Saul tried to kill me many, many times. He could have said all kinds of negative things. But in a eulogy, you don't do that. And that's really what David is doing here. But I think more importantly, David is reflecting the heart of God in this matter. Much more than just simply a eulogy, he is reflecting the compassion that God has on his people. In Ezekiel chapter 33, we are told that God does not rejoice over the death of the wicked. In Proverbs, Proverbs 24, verse 11, I believe it is, Solomon writes that we are not to rejoice when our enemy falls. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. David did not do that. And it's probably because of David having not done so that Saul, uh, that Samuel rather, excuse me, that Solomon, his son, would have had that sort of attitude. But it's also... God's position as well. So that's the story that ends chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. David is lamenting the death of his friend Jonathan and also his enemy Saul. And what he says about Jonathan expresses such a great and wonderful relationship that men can have as good brotherly friends that have been closer than a brother for each other. Jonathan blessed David in many, many ways, and David blessed Jonathan also. They were great 
great friends, and their friendship ended way too soon for the both of them. As far as they were concerned, as in fact, Jonathan thought that he would be under David when David would take his throne, you may recall. Jonathan was willing to relinquish his right to the throne to the man who rightfully was to have the throne of Israel. He knew that was David's destiny. He would not stand in the way. In fact, he encouraged David in the pursuit of that. David loved Jonathan. And Jonathan loved David. But it was a brotherly love. It was a friendship that was based on integrity and godliness. Don't you ever forget that. And it's so good to have friends that you can rely on as David was able to with regard to Jonathan and he with David. Well, chapter 2 continues the story of David's moving to that place where he ultimately will become the king. And verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us the heart of David in this matter. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Now remember, he's in Ziklag. Ziklag is still in Philistine territory, and he wants to make sure that it's the right choice for him to go at this time into Judah. And his purpose is plain. He is going to be received as king, and he knows that that is ultimately the destiny that God has for him. But he wants to make sure that he does it with God moving before him, rather than he moving before God. That's really a very, very good way to go about all of our lives. Never go ahead of God. Always let God go before us. And he does lead. And he gives the answer to David, however it is made, either through the Urim and the Thummim, or whether it's through prophecy, we're not told. But here he says the answer, go up. That's the answer. Yes, David, go up to Judah. So David needs to now know what's the next step. And I like that because David doesn't not only go before God, but he makes sure that he only goes one step at a time. You do what God says, and then you wait. And you find out what else God is going to say, and then you move on from there. Never, ever, ever go ahead of God. That's a great plan for all of us. Man's ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not man's ways, I should say. But a man follows his heart. But God directs his steps. Always a good thing. The Lord said to him, go up. And then David asks a second question. Where shall I go up? And he gets another answer from God. He said clearly to Hebron. Now Hebron is in the southern portion of Judah. And it is there that David will be anointed king of Judah. So David, verse 2, goes up from there. And he went there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Don't forget, he's got two wives now. A little later on, we're going to find out he's got a few more than just the two, and he's got a lot of children, as will be recorded in Second Samuel. Why? Uh, well, maybe we can discuss that more fully when we get to that portion of Scripture. But here he's got his two wives with him. Remember, he was successful in bringing them back from the Amal Amalekites who had taken them captive. 
It says in verse 3, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And he told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now Jabesh-Gilead, the name that I was trying to remember earlier but messed up pretty badly, Jabesh-Gilead, remember, again in First Samuel, were the ones who went to get, take the body of Saul off from the wall in Gath and bring his body back to be given a decent burial. They burned the body and then they buried the bones in that territory near where Saul had reigned. Jabesh-Gilead were friends of Saul. They were favored friends of Saul. They lived in that territory of Benjamin. David is now made aware of the fact that they were the ones who took the bodies of Saul and gave Saul a rightful burial. That impressed David tremendously, as we'll see here. So it says in verse 5, So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And how now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you? I also will repay you with kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened, and be valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now you might think that this is just David buttering them up, but that's not the case at all. Notice that he says, Now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness. In other words, David is not holding a grudge against them because they favored Saul and they were on Saul's side. He wants them to know that he's not going to do them any harm. He wants them to realize that he is willing to help them in whatever their need might be as a result of their kindness to Saul, he wants to bless them. And that's a wonderful way for King David to begin his reign. Now again, they're not part of Judah. They are part of Benjamin. He is reigning over the Judahites, and they alone, that one tribe, are the only tribe under his authority as their king. But he wants to extend the hand of fellowship to all of Israel. And he's beginning now with Benjamin, here with the people at Jabesh-Gilead. However, there's a problem. There's another issue that has to be dealt with. And that problem, that issue, is Abner. Remember, Abner was the general of Saul's army. He apparently survived the Philistine battles that had just taken place. And now he's back in Benjamin, and he is doing things on behalf of Saul, his former king. And it tells us in verse 8, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So that's pretty much inclusive. All 11 tribes are now going to be under this new king, the descendant of Saul, the rightful heir as far as Abner is concerned because he is a son of Saul 
And by virtue of that fact, the dynasty in Abner's mind must continue. So he is established Ishbosheth as the king. It tells us in verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. Interesting that he only lasted for two years. See, Abner was really the one that was in charge. Ishbosheth basically became a puppet king. And during those two years, it didn't go very well for the people in those northern tribes of Israel. And Abner began, as we will see as it unfolds for us, to realize that it really wasn't a good thing. Now, we're not told how Ishbosheth dies, but he was, he was only there for two years and he ended his reign. Now there's nobody else. But David, on the other hand, having begun in Hebron or Hebron, it tells us in verse 11, at the time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah for seven years and six months. So, David began his reign for the first seven and a half years in Hebron. And for the first few years, at least, he was only king over Judah. Now, that will change. But it takes a lot of effort and a lot of difficulty and a lot of bloodshed, unfortunately. And that bloodshed begins with an interesting, almost innocent meeting between Abner and Joab, David's general. It tells us in verse 12, Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah, the servant of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they're facing one another across this large pool in Gibeon. And their armies are with them. But instead of fighting army against army at this point, Abner suggests a little bit of a sport. Well, I'm not really sure if that was a good idea, but that's what they did, and that's what they agreed to do. They would take a group of young men and let them just have at it. And whoever wins that little skirmish will basically win the battle for one army or the other. Kind of like the challenge that Goliath made against Israel back in the day when David slew Goliath. That was the same kind of challenge. If David wins, Israel wins. If Goliath wins, the Philistines win. Same idea here. And Abner agreed to it. Verse 15 says, So they rose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, and so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Well, the little skirmish proved to be a draw. All twelve on each side died in that little skirmish, and as a result, they went to war. The armies 
fought against one another. And it resulted in a major, major slaughter. But before we're told all the details of that, we find a very, very personal story with regard to Abner and Joab that will continue to be a problem for the both of them until one of them takes matters into his own hands. And we're not going to talk more about that until we get to that point. But here we have the story that the three sons in verse 18 of Zeruiah, that's David's sister, by the way. So these are David's cousins or nephews. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. He was chasing after Abner only. And then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold of one of the young men, and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. He was after Abner alone. And verse 22 says, So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? He's very much aware of the fact that it would be a very troublesome thing if Joab were to find out that he killed Joab's brother Asahel. And that's exactly what takes place. For verse 23 tells us, However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they stood still. That was a terrible thing that had just taken place. Joab will never, ever forget Abner. Never will he forgive Abner. Remember, David was willing to forgive Saul. David was willing to let Saul live. There is a contrast coming in the two of these men. As we will read further, you'll see that very clearly. Well, verse 24 says, Joab and Abishai, his brother, also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. So they're in a defensive position. They're at the high ground, so they've got an advantage, but they're standing at the top of the hill ready for the onslaught of Joab and his army. Now the children, verse 25 of Benjamin, gathered together behind Abner and became a unit. It says in verse 26, Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be there then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? We're the same people. We're descendants of Isaac. We're descendants of Israel. We're descendants of Abraham. All of us are relatives. We shouldn't be fighting against each other. And the statement that he makes here did indeed make sense to Joab. And it says in verse 27, And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. In other words, it would have been all over by morning if you hadn't spoken. 
So Joab blew a trumpet, verse 28 says, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more in that battle. And I say that as a parenthesis in that battle. They stopped the battle then. They all went home. And it tells us in verse 29, Then Abner and his men went on that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. And so Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants nineteen men and Asahel. They had lost twenty men in this skirmish, in the battle that had ensued. After they were chasing these men, they lost very, very few. But it tells us in verse 31, the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. 18 to 1 loss. What a terrible, terrible tragedy for the people who were following after Abner. It says a great deal about the power of David's army. Remember, he had been running from Saul. He had accumulated among the men who came to him a total of about 600 warriors. They had had many battles that they had won very, very successfully. And they were skilled and very well-armed men of war. By the time they have come to this place, all of them, because they had been associated with the Philistines for 16 months or more, they all had iron swords, a great advantage. They were the swords of the Philistines. They were very, very well armed. And the people who followed after Abner had bronze, probably, swords, if they had swords as weapons at all. Probably most of them had bows and arrows. Some of them had spears and other farm implements that they could use as weapons. But not all of them were well-equipped. Remember, Saul and only a few of his men were well-equipped with swords and spears. So the armies were not equal in terms of ability and not equal in terms of equipment. And it was a terrible, terrible slaughter on Adam, uh, Abner's uh, army. Lastly, it says in verse 32, Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. So that's the terrifying story of the beginning of David's reign as king. Again, he begins in the first two years, at least, only reigning over Judah. There's been fighting between Israel and Judah. Many lives have already been lost. The life of Joab's youngest brother has been lost at the hand of Abner. There's an angry general in Judah. There's a God-fearing king in Judah. They too will clash many more times. But over the time of David's reign, Joab will mostly remain David's favored general because he is a man of war and he knows that Joab is one of the best that he could ever put into such a position. We'll see how that plays out as we continue reading through Second Samuel. 
But keep in mind, David lamented the death of Saul. He certainly did lament the death of his friend Jonathan. But he had no ill feelings, at least that were manifest before the people. And that's important. And how wonderful it would be if we could have in every relationship that we all have, whether they are relationships that turn sour or not, if we could always have something good to say about those with whom we come into contact. That's a tall order for some of us. But friends, if we're to avoid becoming bitter of heart, if we're to avoid becoming angry without being able to let it go, then we must not do anything differently than what God has prescribed. And if God insists on doing it for himself, and he uses David as an example of how it can be done through any one of us as well, so let it be that we would remember this story, if for nothing else, but for the compassion and for the grace that David bestowed upon his enemy.